0: This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content.
1: I regret to inform you, you're on Chapel Probation, a podcast that takes a critical look at evangelical colleges and universities, and a bunch of other things. I'm your host, Scott Okamoto. Greetings, reprobates. So I was thinking, it's sometimes a little bit lonely um, being someone who deconstructed a long time ago, um, and also being in this amazing community of deconstructed folks. We didn't have great podcasts or Facebook groups to turn to for guidance or support. Just a quiet exit from a shitty world of bigotry and intolerance and questionable theology. I had a few friends who also had left somewhere along the way, and We would share stories and memories, and don't get me wrong, the current deconstruction world is amazing. It's a huge part of my life today, and I'm so grateful for everyone I've met. I just don't know many of the big names, the music of evangelicals of the past 20 years, or most of the crappy books. I'm completely ignorant of almost all Christian culture of the past 20 years. Thank Buddha. All this to say, meeting Dr. Julie Ingersoll through Chrissy Stroop has been super cool because she too left a long time ago. But she has made a life as a professor and researcher of religious studies. So while we relate to each other as old school apostates, she knows the names and the books. Most importantly to me, Dr. Ingersoll is a fellow fly fisher and you all should thank your deity of choice that I didn't just make this a fly fishing episode. If I get burned out doing this, though, hmm. Uh,
2: I am Julie Ingersoll, and I'm a professor of religious studies. That's what I do for a living.
1: Yes, you are. You are, you have just raised the bar of gravitas of this podcast simply by coming on. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: and you can call me anything but Miss Julie. Okay, please. so no. <laughs>
1: no as, as a
2: Yankee exile to the South, I get that way too much. Yeah,
1: so you're not from Florida originally, no, no. Um, in fact, you have roots in California, as I recall.
2: I do. Yeah, I always say that I'm really from Maine, but my heart's been in California since I moved there in the mid '80s. Okay. Yeah, I lived there until I, on and off, until I finished grad school at Santa Barbara in '97. Right.
1: So. It's going to be tempting yeah. for us to talk about fishing. So we, we'll leave that to the know. end. Because um, <laughs> if we put it at the beginning, everyone's just going to stop listening. And um, <laughs> it'll uh, just be you and me, which is fine for later. So um, <laughs> so t- tell me about your, your story, your background. Uh, how did you get to be in this position and do the research that you do?
2: How did I get sucked into the crazy? Yeah. <laughs> Um, Well, uh, I grew up in New England. Uh, My mom is a really committed uh, Episcopalian. She goes to her church that she went to since she was about two years old. Um, And so she dragged me along, but it was never really important to me. I never connected with that part of Christian tradition, really. Um, I was much more uh, interested in ideas, and that seemed more like uh, community, uh, which is actually how I understand religion now. But anyway, so growing up, I didn't. I, I went to church because she made me, but that was about it. Um, but in college, uh, I met um, uh, someone who would become my husband, um, and became a kind of reformed, very specific version of Christian. Um, although I didn't understand it as that at the time, I just understood it as Christian. Um, and uh, my my now ex uh, and his family were. Um, a uh, very um, ardent Christian Reconstructionist, um, very much in the kind of inner circle of that world. Uh, my brother-in-law published a bunch of Rustioni's books, and you know, Rustioni would come and visit and stay with family members. And Gary North would come and stay with family members. David Chilton came and stayed with family members. So all of those early Christian Reconstructionist folks were uh, kind of around in the water. So
1: what what and is can... a Christian Reconstructionist? Because I'm thinking a lot of our listeners are of and, and, didn't I? Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is a relatively obscure movement within conservative Christianity that many people won't have heard of, but have been influenced by without realizing it. So this uh, version of Christianity is really what popularized um, what we now call dominion theology, um, and really built the Christian school movement upon which the Christian homeschool movement was built.
0: Uh-huh. So this
2: guy Rush Dooney, uh, laid out this biblical critique of public education and a strategy for dismantling it in order to bring about a theocratic society. Um, yeah, I know, right? Wow. <laughs>
1: Wait. So, was there a, was there um, a college organization involved with this, like you know, like a uh, Campus Crusade? There or...
2: really wasn't. Uh, no, no. Actually, I was uh, a political science major and I was interested in politics and I was a Republican and I was working with the College Republicans. Ah. um and met people who were Christian Reconstructionists who were in the area to work on some political campaigns. Okay. And this would have been about uh, in the uh, 1980. Okay. 1980.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Long time ago. Yeah. No, I'm I'm just a little bit after you. So <laughs> Um, <laughs> just, just a little, um, but, um, okay. So you, you, through your relationship and through the people you were hanging out with got involved with this church. And so it, yes, how, how similar was this movement to like today's evangelical? Would, would there be any, any crossover there?
2: Well, this, today's evangelicals are a lot more similar to this movement than they were right. that. Okay. Uh, this movement has had a huge influence on evangelicalism. Uh, but I would think if you wanted to look at specific, maybe individuals or sites that, uh, that are illustrative of it today, uh, you would probably look at the really uh, heavy duty reformed part of evangelicalism. Um, and uh, the folks who've lately been uh, publishing work in defense of this uh, Christian nationalism Um, you know kind of started out as a derogatory label and now they've said yeah but what's wrong with that and they've started embracing it those folks are really very much into this kind of christian reconstructionist world Um, another place that you might look for it is out um, in idaho in moscow idaho doug wilson's church is a is a really it it, is shaped by this way of looking at things Um, mike ferris at uh, patrick henry college and the christian Mm -hmm. homeschool association that that little orbit. Um, so it's all over the place Is now. Is um,
1: part of that too? like um, Yeah. You
2: know? Yes. Yeah, so I would. Well, so there's this overlap between the kind of reformed dominionists and the new apostolic right. reformation dominionists. Right. And in my view, there's a really early connection in the eighties with the charismatic movement. I kind of think it's how it got okay. there, uh, but nobody's really dug that out yet. As far as I can
1: okay. tell. Okay. So the work of like Brad and and Brad Onishi and all his Colleagues, mm-hmm. it's They're, very important. Yeah. So, but you can sort of trace it um, to another source. Um, yes. Interesting. An earlier source. An earlier source.
2: Yeah. Wow. So you know the the Re- Rush journey and the Christian Reconstructionists really started in the ni- late fifties, early sixties, and flourished in the seventies. And you don't have the the development of this independent charismatic world until later than that. Um, and you have a, in the mid eighties with uh, Gary North, one of the important reconstructionists, you have this uh, connection with the charismatic world. He had this idea that the best way to spread dominionism was to get it built into the charismatic world because that world was bordering. Um And then that's what happened. So I can't prove that that's how it happened, um, but I know that part of it, that's the piece of it I have. The rest of it, I haven't dug it up. Yeah. Somebody should. Yeah.
1: That's a grim.
2: The, the, what, Bradley, the, the, where the rubber hits the road, of course, is not where it came from. Right. Where it came from is important only in terms of helping us see the scope and the agenda. Um, wow. Where it is and where it's going is what's important. Right. And we can get some of it. We can get insight into where it's going by seeing the goals of its origins. But- you know, it's not all about tracing it back to the past. Sure. That's well.
1: Yeah. Do you think people like Peter Wagner and all those guys were aware of the connection to the to the Reformed uh, or to the to your, your brand of Christianity? Uh, I,
2: I don't know. I don't. It was the Mumfords who were at, at Maranatha Ministries mm. who were working closely with Gary North, um, and how that might have made its way out, I'm not really clear about. Um, I know that I. Um, as part of my as part of my move out of this world, actually, uh, I was I was part of a charismatic church in Los Angeles. I was never a charismatic, but there was just a lot of affinity between not so much the even the eschatology or the other parts of the theology, but in terms of the um, kind of religion on the ground and how it should work in the world, they they were completely compatible.
1: Okay, um, so yeah.
2: It's so really like dominion theology is really the linchpin, and of course, one of the early new apostolic reformation books is called Dominion, right? right? Um,
1: was that Wagner's book?
2: Was that Wagner's? I, think, I, I can't can remember. picture
1: that on my parents' bookshelf. I can
2: picture <laughs> it right. It's blue. <laughs> it's over here oh. somewhere, but yeah. yeah
1: and uh, so, just for you, how did you? When did you start deconstructing? Was it because you didn't want to be dancing with the uh, with the Charismatics or um, barking like a dog? Or- no,
2: no. The Charismatics are oh, okay. <laughs> great. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed the Charismatics. Um, yeah, well, I, I was trying to think that through this morning uh, as part of our conversation, is preparation for our conversation. Because, of course, uh, my background's a little different from a lot of the people that you talk to mm-hmm. in your podcast. Um, I did this a long, long time ago before there was social media before there was such a thing as ex-evangelicals yeah. before there was a label deconstruction, yeah. you know, that was just something that Michel Foucault talked about. It wasn't yeah. something that, uh, Christians talked about how they kind of unwound all of the stuff that came along with being, being part of this very particular world. Um, so I don't have a specific point in time when it happened. Right. Uh, I, I had, I, I took with me into that world because I was a late convert, right? I took with me some significant feminist convictions. I was um, always very much a kind of activist and very much uh, uh, in favor of women's equality. Um, I constantly was battling with my in-laws over questions about the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, I kept my name when I got married Mm -hmm. in the 80s in a conservative fundamentalist Christian family, right? So this part of me was always there. Um, so I think that there was always something that uh, I now call cognitive dissonance, but I didn't have a label for it then. Um, I was just struggling with trying to make sense out of how to exist as who I am in the context of this framework that I had come to believe was true. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, so when it's, I mean, it unra- in some ways it started unraveling from the very beginning, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, the, I mean, that was always uneasy. And uh, a lot of my journey was an intellectual journey. Um, so there were really important books. Catherine Bushnell's God's Word to Women was crucial. I don't know if you're familiar with mm. that. Um, uh, it was Catherine de first book was on Catherine oh. Bushnell. Uh, and, and Bushnell was, a, she wrote in the 20s. She was a Quaker. And she wrote a book. Uh, no, it wasn't God's Word to Women. I'm sorry. It was on women speaking. Mm. Um, And she wrote about, oh, no, I think I'm confusing the two See, this was a long time ago. I think on Women Speaking was an earlier article. Um, But anyway, these were very early arguments that the Bible teaches women's equality, that it doesn't teach patriarchy. Um, And when I first encountered those perspectives, it was a little bit disorienting because I had been completely convinced that that was not true. Um, And on one level, it was wonderfully freeing. But on another level, it was destabilizing because I started to understand how much interpretation goes into what we think the Bible actually says. Right. And of course, that's now crucial to all of the work I do. Um, there is no uninterpreted text. Right. Of course, I didn't know that then. Um, you know, I was 23 years old, yeah. um, I had, these ideas had not, I had not encountered them yet. Uh, and of course, later there were books by, uh, Letha Scanzoni and Nancy Hardesty that became important. Um, but I you know it, it was a long process of unraveling and now I think deconstructing the the way that patriarchy has shaped my understanding of Christianity. Um, and I, I think back often on some of that early work that we called evangelical feminists or biblical feminists uh, it for me now in hindsight is is problematic in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. so they're very much, they are often very much uh, uh, critical of women's submission, but still very um, not supportive of LGBTQ rights and and that sort of thing. So they draw quite a line there, at least in some some corners of the movement. And while I am troubled by that um, in terms of a, a way of seeing the world, at the same time, I think that having movements that are in that little space is really important because I certainly could not have entertained an entire wholesale reinterpretation of all of it all at once. And the little piece that it gave me that I needed kind of broke a dam.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And so, you know, I can see those those works that are Pro women's equality, but not pro LGBTQ equality. I can see them as deeply problematic and also necessary yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like that's one whole kind of thread of the deconstruction. But also, I was going to starting at seminary and going to grad school and thinking about these other kind, thinking about these questions in other sorts of ways. Um, so there were there were other threads to the to the dismantling of my place in that world and my sense that it's even true,
1: Uh, yeah. When Julie and I deconstructed, we didn't have the language or context that people have today. And I'm not saying our deconstruction was better or worse, just different. A lot of folks today have clear memories of moments and occurrences during their deconstruction. And Julie and I have those, but a lot of our process gets recognized in retrospect each step took place leading to where we are now so it's weird i have some sympathy for um the Duggar daughter i can't remember her name who escaped one of the most horrific branches of the christian tree only to land in a slightly less horrific one i get the criticism From our deconstructed places in life, we pull our hair out wondering how in the hell she could recognize the fucked up teachings of her former church, but not the same, albeit milder, fucked up teachings at MacArthur's church. But it's a process. I mean, I would be embarrassed if people saw me at early points in my deconstruction. Oof, thank Buddha there wasn't social media back then.
2: Um, yeah, well, I, I was trying to think that through this morning uh, as part of our conversation is preparation for our conversation. Because, of course, uh, my background's a little different from a lot of the people that you talk mm-hmm. to in your podcast. Um, I did this a long, long time ago before there was social media, before there was such a thing as ex-evangelicals, yeah. before there was a label deconstruction. Yeah. You know, that was just something that Michel Foucault talked about. It wasn't something that uh, Christians talked about how they kind of unwound all of the stuff that came along with being being part of this very particular world. Um, so I don't have a specific point in time when it happened. Right. Uh, I, I had I I took with me into that world because I was a late convert. Right. I took with me some significant feminist convictions. I was um, always very much a kind of activist and very much uh, uh, in favor of women's equality. Um, I constantly was battling with my in-laws over questions about the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, I kept my name when I got married Mm. in the 80s in a conservative fundamentalist Christian family, right? So this part of me was always there. so I think that there was always something that uh, I now call cognitive dissonance, but I didn't have a label for it then. Um, I was just struggling with trying to make sense out of how to exist as who I am in the context of this framework that I had come to believe was true. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, so when it's, I mean, it unra- in some ways it started unraveling from the very beginning, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, that was always uneasy. And uh, a lot of my journey was an intellectual journey. Um, So there were really important books. Catherine Bushnell's God's Word to Women was crucial. I don't know if you're familiar with Mm. that. Um, uh, It was Catherine de first book was on Catherine Bushnell. Uh, And and Bushnell was a, she wrote in the 20s. She was a Quaker. And she wrote a book. uh, No, it wasn't God's Word to Women. I'm sorry. It was on women speaking. Um, And she wrote about, oh, no, I think I'm confusing the two. See, this was a long time ago. I think on women speaking was an earlier article. Um, But anyway, these were very early arguments that the Bible teaches women's equality, that it doesn't teach patriarchy. Um, And when I first encountered those perspectives, it was a little bit disorienting because I had been completely convinced that that was not true. Um, And on one level, it was wonderfully freeing. But on another level, it was destabilizing because I started to understand how much interpretation goes into what we think the Bible actually says. Right. And of course, that's now crucial to all of the work I do. Um, there is no uninterpreted text. Right. Of course, I didn't know that then. Um, you know, I was 23 years old. Yeah. Um, I had, these ideas had not, I had not encountered them yet. Uh, and of course, later there were books by, uh, Letha Scanzoni and Nancy Hardesty that became important. Um, but, I, you know, it, it was a long process of unraveling. And now I think deconstructing the the way that patriarchy has shaped my understanding of Christianity. Um, and I, I think back often on some of that early work that we called evangelical feminists or biblical feminists. Uh, it, for me now, in hindsight, is, is problematic in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. So they're very much... They are often very much uh, uh, critical of women's submission, but still very um, not supportive of LGBTQ rights and and that sort of thing. So they draw quite a line there, at least in some some corners of the movement. And while I am troubled by that um, in terms of a, a way of seeing the world, at the same time, I think that having movements that are in that little space is really important because I certainly could not have entertained an entire wholesale reinterpretation of all of it all at once. And the little piece that it gave me that I needed kind of broke a dam. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I can see those, those works that are, pro-women's equality, but not pro-LGBTQ equality. I can see them as deeply problematic and also necessary yeah. at the same yeah. time. Um, yeah. So like, that's one whole kind of thread of the deconstruction, but also I was going to starting at seminary and going to grad school and thinking about these other kind, thinking about these questions in other sorts of ways. Um, so there were, there were other threads to the, to the dismantling of, my place in that world and my sense that it's even true. Uh, yeah.
1: Would would you say that there those early uh, evangelical feminists were still a form of complementarianism?
2: Well, uh, yes, but that's anachronistic. That term didn't exist right. yet.
1: But the idea right? that there's that was, these specific roles God intended for between men and women um, that they assume are biblically um, based.
2: Yes and no. Uh, certainly, binary understanding of gender mm-hmm. was central there, right? Um, and the argument really didn't go to the point where you're talking about until the 80s, till the mid to late 80s, with um, the you know recovering biblical manhood and womanhood, for right. example. Uh, that that's really the introduction of this label con- complementarianism that was trying to, I think, just remarket older patriarchy women's submission theologies. But in the era that we're talking about, it was really about women's submission
0: right.
2: and a, Latin of, um, a, a hierarchy in marriage and limited limits on women's leadership in the church. Uh, complementarianism goes further and actually argues that it's a violation of women's essential nature right. to be leaders over men in any context. Yeah, um, That's specifically in the Grudem and Piper book. Wow. Um so so complementarianism as is in some ways patriarchy on steroids yeah. with a good marketing campaign. Right. right. Um
1: Yeah, well th- thankfully yeah. thankfully the, the term wasn't around for them to hit you with back then. <laughs> um
2: No, it was just submit, yeah, submit, submit. submit. <laughs>
1: um Okay, so
2: I still have sort of PTSD when I'm doing something online and I hit a button and it has to say submit. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh no, no
1: must resist. It, bothers yeah. me. it really does. <laughs> There's gotta be another way to get this done. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. Oh. Yeah. That's. Oof. Um,
2: Which is why yeah. the label deconstruction, I think is so helpful yeah. because you do realize that there are layers and layers of, this, yeah. that go all the way back and they, and they grab you at an emotional level. Obviously that has nothing to do with submitting in any sense. And that was decades ago. It has no impact on my life at all anymore. And yet I just have this visceral kind of ugh, at the word.
1: Yeah. See, <laughs> and that's where male privilege comes in because I don't even think twice about hitting that button. <laughs> Cause. <laughs> yeah.
2: um, if only it were. If only male privilege only went that far. Yeah.
1: So <laughs> as as we move forward, like how how would you define yourself now, um, spiritually or religiously? Yeah, I don't. Right. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, I even resist labels like atheist and all because it actually, see, this is this is an, an example of deconstructing yeah. because over time, uh, I've come to see the category atheist as dependent on a context that's Christian or at least theist. Right. I mean, we don't go about saying I'm an a unicornist. I don't define myself (laughs) as my identity is not shaped by anything that I don't believe other than that. thing. And that's because I live in a culture that's dominated by theism that constantly wants me to answer that question. And it's just a non thing for me. It's a non question.
1: I love that. I'm going to start using that. Because I feel like there's a pressure to say how I how we define, you know. So you're not a Christian anymore. So what are you? And but the question, like you say, is is steeped in the context of the Christianity. And so, mm-hmm. what are you a, a, as opposed to Christian? You know what? Or yeah, opposition or at to, least theist. Yeah, right, right, right. theism. Yeah. So, yeah, I I usually say things like agnostic atheist, depending on the day which gives you kind of an out to to have other labels that haven't been invented yet or something. So, um, yeah. 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 So it's like, it's like the nuns, right? Like we're just does not, a ap- question does not apply. Um, right. Yeah.
2: Uh, actually, that's the best answer to that is N slash yeah, A, not applicable. applicable.
1: That's our new, we're, we're starting yeah. a new we're making a new label. Oh no! Wait, no, it's not a label. I'm a
2: trailblazer. Yeah, it's
1: a it's a non-label. <laughs> um, all right. So, but I, yeah. there's
2: something else I want to say about that process, sure. though, because I stayed a lot on the um, on the evangelical feminism and that, and that was really important. But it was also, um, I mean, there's a couple other threads there, and one of them was an intellectual journey where I came to see that biblicist Protestantism is actually untenable you know protestants rely on the sacred text and they deny the say, the teaching authority of the church to join them in understanding what it means while at the same time relying on that very authority to tell them what should what should be included so there's a kind of paradox there that i just went wow really that's crazy yeah. and at the same time i was increasingly seeing just how angry and defensive and manipulative and disfest def- defensive and I'm sorry, and deceptive, this forum of Christianity was. And of course, this was the forum I knew. I don't think that that's true of all Christianity, but this world is really sort of ugly and mean. And we have a label for that now. We call these people right. And And it's because they emphasize their argumentation and their theologies over people. They care more about the arguments than the people. Yeah. And you find this, I mean, you find it among philosophers sure. also. It's not, it's a temperament and it's not just among Christians and it's yeah. not just They're atheists either. too. Same um, thing, Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. But it's an, it's an approach to argument where winning the argument is everything yeah. as though somebody who's not good at arguing might still know what's true. It might be correct. Yeah. Right. It's deeply arrogant. Yeah. Uh, it, it's amazing to me that, a, that the, that the Reformed tradition that has this idea of this massive gulf between the creator and the creation, so unbridgeable that we can't fathom God's ways. And yet these guys think that their little tiny brains can reduce all of truth to the to a level of certainty hmm. that they'll just they'll be absolutely hateful toward people with with complete certainty that they're that they're right and the other people are wrong. I just that level of certitude and arrogance is just mind boggling to me in hindsight. In hindsight.
1: Yeah in hindsight and it's still there and it's still Still annoying. It's it's still. It's oh yeah, still, yeah. Oh,
2: it's still there. I just mean I didn't. I didn't see it then. Sure, it took me a long. time Oh,
1: when to you see it. were in it, you didn't. Um,
2: in, in hindsight, yeah, you, yeah. I can look back on. Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there's this pressure to try, try to keep up with them, right, and try to answer them, and try to um, prove yourself. Um,
2: yeah, but there's never any humility. <laughs> no. Oh, what, what if I'm wrong about that? Or,
1: or sense of community, right? It's.
2: Right. Yeah. The ideas are more important than the people.
1: Because the idea, like a healthy discourse of two people, two or more people debating something can still be community building, can still be edifying to to the individuals and to the group. But the way those people do it. Yeah. It's more like playing king in the mountain, you know, theologically or something where. Yeah.
2: So I think I would use the word discussing rather than debating because debating ends up having that competitive yeah, character. To
1: totally. It. Totally.
2: I was really lucky with my grad school experience at Santa Barbara because uh, my colleagues and my professors were very collegial and collaborative mm. and we didn't, um, we, there wasn't that atmosphere. And I think that that's where I really started to see how bad and, and really toxic that, 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 Competitive debating, the competitive intellectual approach is not like, what if we decide that the most important thing is to figure out the best answer? And we all get to work on that and bring to bear the things that we have and challenge each other's ideas. And, but the goal isn't to be right or we'll win. <laughs> the goal is to figure out an answer. Wouldn't that be better?
1: Yeah. It sounds like you're describing that office. sound, your experience does not sound typical for academia because <laughs> I feel like academia I think it's can not. be very. Yeah
2: i think that's combative yep. and yeah hmm. I, I think my experience was atypical in, in a lot yeah. of ways santa barbara was a very special place
1: it helps to be next to the yeah. ocean i think um
2: it does <laughs> it does um but it was uh I, I just had the i had wonderful professors that's awesome that i worked really really closely with and it was uh i was lucky because i just stumbled into it i didn't I, I can't claim any credit for having chosen the right place. Sure. I just it was there, and yeah. But speaking of grad school, I think another important part of the deconstruction was I studied with sociologists of religion, Wade Clark Roof. Um, if anybody knows his name, he wrote he wrote the, the book on baby boomers oh. and religion. Um, and he, sociologists introduced me to Durkheim, and Durkheim led me to understand that God, religion. Is a is a construction of human minds where we imagine something. We we, we take what we can know and we imagine it in, an, in a way that's um, transcendent, eternal, or whatever. But it's always shaped by what we know. And I, there was this lightning moment when I realized that that means if you if you believe Durkheim, it means that when someone tells you about God, they are telling you about them. Mm. They don't know anything about God, if there is a God. They don't know anything about God. They are telling you how they would imagine God to be. And that tells you everything about who they are. And that was like, oh, wow, I know who these people are now. I see. Who would imagine a God like that? (laughs) And who would then go to the Bible to find it there? Like, yeah, that was a moment
1: yeah i have a blog post that pretty much says that in much much more um (laughs) immature terms but we're like each time i i had a revelation about the world the god i believed in changed with that so as a kid i believed Mm -hmm. god hated gay people and and didn't want me to swear or drink alcohol and then oh no gay people are fine um and languages is like, you know, you just keep developing and your God keeps ironically developing with you. <laughs> um, right. Changing with you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's like a projection. And
2: Durkheim says that's what we should expect. <clears throat> that's how it works.
1: Yeah. So we, we sort of project our, how, how God yeah. is.
2: It, it makes all the sense in the world. We couldn't do otherwise. We're talking about something that's infinite and we're finite. So we have no, we can't, We can't bridge that if it's, if there is such a thing, we can't bridge it.
1: And we're left with a text, a, or a group of texts in the the Bible that aren't very helpful, that that are not clear, that are contradictory. Um, Oh,
2: but the Bible is (laughs) clear. No, I said that all the time.
1: The Bible is very clear that this, but uh, yeah, not, not so much, (laughs) not so much. Um, So, uh, I see you have. I I have to take cues from you because my book just came out, and your book is right behind you. Um, that's, oh
2: yeah, it's. I when I do it, it just stays. It just lives perfect. there so that I don't have to think about a background when I do interviews. Yeah. No. Yeah. Congrats on the new oh, book. Thanks. That's exciting, isn't it? Yep. It's really fun to see it in
1: print. It's fun and a little scary because now people are telling me they're reading <laughs> it, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs>
2: oh, I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um,
2: yeah. And it is up until now. You could always fix it, right? And it, it yeah, reminds Oh, no, it. it is whatever it's it was in there. the moment.
1: <laughs> um. So yeah, tell me about your book, Building God's Kingdom, and um, how you wrote it. Well,
2: this book was thirty-five years in the writing. It really does go. It's about the Christian Reconstructionists, and it goes back to um, the origins of it. So some of it, it's not. But it's not a memoir. I mean, my I'm present in it. My I, I'm you know trained as a scholar of religion, and the you know in my in my generation of training, it was not self reflexive. It was keep yourself right. out of it. It's not about yeah. you. So the book itself is not is there's not it's not shaped by my personal stories and that sort of thing. Uh, it's shaped by ethnographic field research that I was trained to do um, in, in my doctoral program in religious studies. Um, But my editor forced me to write this preface that's kind of autobiographical, which I still am uncomfortable with, but uh, so it's there. um, And I think it's important that it's there because um, I don't, I don't, because keeping myself out of it doesn't mean it's quote unquote objective. There is, I don't believe that it can be objective. And situating myself in relationship to the work I did is certainly something that is um, important for readers to have when they evaluate what, they, what I say. Um, so in some ways, I suppose it would make my um, evidence stronger because um, I have not only interviewed evidence and documentary evidence and historical evidence, but also personal observations, personal experiences, um, but it could also raise questions. You know, I, I, left. So people often want to discount the views of people who are X something. Yeah. There's a real problem intellectually with that, but it is the default yeah. that we yeah. have. Um, is so somehow the people who leave have a vested interest that the people who stay don't have, which is not correct. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, so I have, a I I uh, I I married a Christian reconstructionist and and lived in that community for quite some time. Uh, I worked in a Christian reconstructionist Christian school for not a long time. I only worked there uh, briefly. Um, but, uh, when I was married, we actually started a Christian school. So I have uh, quite a bit of experience in the context of that Christian school world. Um, and then I kind of described how I gradually left that world. Um, but yeah, so the book is part a, a kind of analysis and explanation of the theological system that, that Reconstructionist relies on that I argue they spread to the rest of evangelicalism with the Christian school movement and then the homeschool movement. Uh, and then it's a kind of fieldwork-based exploration of where those things are kind of out in the world. So I go to, I, I study a Christian school that, that I wasn't uh, familiar with here, but it's here in Florida. I found it. Uh, I actually, interestingly, I found it. I was just looking for a nearby Christian yeah. school to do some field work. Yeah. And I found one that was based in Christian reconstructionism. They had Rush to as their first graduation speaker. And it was just like, it was the perfect um, case study for what I was trying to look at. Uh, but also homeschool conventions. Mm-hmm. Um, I do some work on the creationist movement that's related to this. Um, and uh, some work on David Barton and the kind of fringes of what was going on at the time, which was the Tea Party movement, and the way, because the larger argument of the book is that even though people haven't heard of this movement, they have been influenced by it if they are part of this kind of conservative evangelical world. They have been shaped by Christian Reconstructionists and the work of Rush Um, Dooney. That's
1: that's kind of scary. It's, It's kind of... Yeah.
2: Then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. There is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus, (laughs) and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get
0: on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options.
2: There's nothing holy about writing discrimination into the law, and I am tired of communities of faith being weaponized because the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. I'm tired of it.
0: Hi, I'm Nate, producer and co-host on the Full Mutuality Podcast. Let's talk about inequality. It's everywhere. Whether it's rooted in race, gender, ability, or sexuality, there's bound to be an imbalance in power, influence, representation, and access. On our show, we want to explore areas of religion, culture, and society where justice is needed in order to bring about true mutuality. I hope you'll join us for some enlightening, fun, and at times uncomfortable conversations as we envision a world where everyone can live free from systems and structures that keep us from being truly equal. You can find us on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, fullmutuality.com to find a list of all the platforms we're available on. Subscribe today and we'll see you on the Full Mutuality Podcast. So what do we do
1: with our former selves? You know, the embarrassing former self. The answer to that question can shed light on how we interact with today's conservative fundamentalists. If we can have grace for our former selves, we might be able to reach out to a MAGA nation asshole. Theoretically, I'm torn on this, as you'll hear. Uh, we want to be, we want to believe there's a way forward, but goddamn, those those people, so tough to talk to. Our safety and sanity are certainly in play here, in our role, in our decision to engage with verbally and physically violent people. What to do? Fishing? Anyone? When you were teaching at the school, was it a was it a high school college?
2: It was K through twelve.
1: Okay, because well, mm-hmm. if I hear you right, you're t- you 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 have been sort of slowly deconstructing your, your whole religious life, were there things you had to teach in the curriculum that you were like, what, or, or you were questioning? No,
2: no, um, there weren't. Because first of all, this was really early. Okay. And, um, you know, it, this was a school owned by my in-laws and their family and everyone in the family kind of taught there. Um, and I taught kind of civics classes that I would aren't that different from what I would teach now. Oh, okay. Um, because I was teaching, you know, this is how the, you know, this is how the th- three branches yeah, of government a, work. This is how this a is bill what, becomes a law. This is... That, that, that's a kind of, it was seventh okay. grade and that's the sort of stuff I was teaching. Okay. So they didn't um, insert
1: like dominionist this... theology into those lessons the way they do now sort of, um,
2: well, no. And, 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 and that was clearly happening in other parts of the mm-hmm. curriculum, but just not what I was doing. Okay. But I wouldn't have been troubled by that right. at the time. Okay.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating to look back at our former selves and the things we accepted. Yes. And
2: yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. Yeah.
1: Sorry to <laughs> drag you back through that. <laughs> uh, too, too early for a drink. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. I think if I met myself now, I wouldn't like me. Right? Like, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, let's not go down that yeah. one. Um, <laughs>
2: Which is actually – well, actually, no, though, I think it's that's an important insight because – I I'm torn as to how people like you and I can and should have tie re, re, retain ties to people in our former mm-hmm. lives who have become really awful mm. of late, yeah. you know, I mean, a decade ago, and I, I, you know, the only time you should say some of my friends are black is when you explain how bad things were that you didn't understand. So our black friends were telling us yeah. how deeply racist America was, but I didn't see mm. it. I didn't know it yet. Um, I, I understand now. Um, and, but those people who, those people who just say those things outright. now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the divide has gotten really ugly, but at the same time, If, and I know Bradley Onishi writes about this mm-hmm. too in his book. I, you know, it's just by, I don't know, I can't attribute my exit to some particular thing that I claim credit for, yeah. right? It just sort of happened. Yeah. And had a few things been different, I don't know who I'd be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
2: when you encounter those people who you write, we rightly consider to be awful, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with Hillary Clinton on this, yeah. right? Um, those people are awful. Yeah.
1: Deplorable. And
2: yet if if you get a, if you get of in a hundred of them in a room, there might be one or two that given the right circumstances in a couple of years could be like you and me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I don't know. I don't, I don't claim any kind of certainty with how to navigate that, how to be a positive influence in the context right. of that. Yeah. And how to avoid uh, um, being the person that supports the ugly.
1: Right, right.
2: Right. I don't know how to do that. Well. It's a problem.
1: It is. But I feel like <clears throat> like we're, we're part of this little Twitter thread <clears throat> uh, with Chrissy Stroop. And I feel like that's sort of the mission of, of why we exist as a group is to support each other in pushing back at all the things you just described so <clears throat> we we each might have reach within our own social and, and academic and work circles but I think as as we've sort of band together we share resources we share share stories we mm-hmm. encourage each other um th- that seems to be at least one thing we can do is is uh, recognize each other yeah, recognize. Yeah. We're all we all have different circumstances, but we're all kind of pulling on the same side of, of of the rope. So. Um,
2: well, and I'm really thankful for Chris putting that together because that's been a kind of lifeline for me. Um, but I'm thinking more about the people that um, really, 15 years ago, I called friends. Right. That now I have nothing to do yeah. with. And it kind of started when, I mean, my politics were already distinct from theirs, but when um, uh, Barack Obama was running for president the first time and I started hearing the N-word attached to him by these people out in public, or even in private, but anywhere, really. uh, I mean, that's not a word, even among my Christian Reconstructionist days, no one used a word like that. no but I started hearing that and I, and it was just moving. It started slowly moving away and away. And I have nothing to do with those people now. And on one level, it's easier. Yeah. Uh, On other ways, it's harder, but also I'm not sure how constructive it is because nobody's around now to to say, do you mean to say that out loud? Like nobody says that to them anymore. And they've gotten louder and louder. Yeah. I don't, that's the
1: part that I struggle with. Yeah, me too, because on one hand, we have to, we have to have boundaries for our own sanity. We all have to, we have to, and we also have to be mindful of who we associate with and who we, um, that's kind of a biblical <laughs> value, but it's, it's like, you know, who, who we, we break bread with or who we, you know, associate with does reflect on us, um, and affects how we have relationships with people who are oppressed and who are marginalized. Um, mm-hmm. But then, yeah, balance that with well, who's who's gonna be in relationship with the the angry, hateful conservative to to push back and to at least be a voice of reason for them. Um, so they're not they don't just have their own echo chamber. Um,
2: and if we all retreat to our own camps, we never right. get out of this.
1: Right. Yeah, I write about this in my book, actually, uh, how I was able to forge relationships with the other side. Um, I used to it.
2: pride myself on that, but I find it I can't do yeah, it anymore. Yeah, and this
1: because it's like to your point, this this was 15 years ago. Um, I don't yeah. know how this would work now, because um, both sides have to come in in good faith and be willing to mm-hmm. listen to the other. Um, and I'm willing to listen. <sighs> <sighs> okay, yes, yeah, I'm willing to listen. <laughs> I have to think about it depending on the context. But yeah, I don't know that they're willing to listen. Um, If they're listening to to, to the Trumpy voices, I don't know that there's a way forward. Um, It's Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. Mm -hmm. Oh, depressing. This is why we go fishing. This is why. um, (laughs) (laughs) So, so I'm guessing people who know your name from, and there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who will, because you're one of the, the voices in the movement. What they probably don't know is that you have published a lot of things in fly fishing from, from before fly fishing was cool. So, um, so (laughs) if you're listening and you don't want to hear about fishing for the next two or three minutes, then you can just like fast forward. But, um, did, what role did fishing play? And I, and actually I'm kind of serious about this because to me, when I was a Christian fishing, going up to the mountains or some lake or stream felt like getting closer to God or something. I don't know if you've read River Runs Through It, but there's like the analogy of uh-huh. yeah, I used to teach that book. I loved the analogy when I was a Christian of the fly cast sort of being getting in tune with the rhythms of God to make a good cast. Huh. Um so it was like it was like a, a fruit of the spirit, um, to be able to fly fish into and then and then the trout or sort of like the the truth and the timelessness of the beneath the waters is is the word and the time and all these things. But now that I'm out of Christianity completely, it's still just a, it's a connection to the earth. It's a connection to nature and just the rhythms of, um, of nature and, and, and humanity. So do you still see spirituality in fishing?
2: Well, um so i grew up fishing as a kid yeah me too yeah but one of the things that got put on hold i i think we this is a very common thing when people are married Mm -hmm. they they focus in on the things that are shared and the things that are not shared fall away and my ex did not fish didn't like it took him a few times and of course fly fishing is more about fishing than catching and if you're trying to get somebody engaged with fishing fly fishing might not be the best thing. Cause you know, you don't always catch stuff and it doesn't matter. Um, so while I was a Christian, I didn't fish, <gasps> oh. And fishing was one of the things that, um, so people who are divorced will recognize this, which is that one of the, so divorce is devastatingly difficult and sad and you're broken and you don't know who you are anymore, yeah. but you start picking up again, things that got lost and there's a, it's part of it's a little bit of joy in the midst of the sadness and the loss. And I re, I started fishing again um, in the wake of a divorce. Mm. Um, and that's when I really got into fly fishing. Mostly before that I was do, I was doing other mm-hmm. kinds of fishing. Um, and so I spent summers in Alaska while I was a grad student fishing and, and I really the fly fishing really took off while I was a grad student and uh, the Santa Barbara newspaper had, a room for a columnist. So I wrote a weekly fly fishing yeah. column for the newspaper and it kind of got picked up by a swell syndication. And I, I was in probably maybe 10 or 11 papers across the country at, at its peak. Um, I I didn't get to do any really serious fly fishing writing, although it's always been something in, on the back burner for me. Um, but I did get to connect into the kind of professional fly fishing mm-hmm. world a little bit and go to the trade shows and I don't know, get free fly reels and stuff like that. So yeah, I know. Right. Uh, So that was really fun. It was great. Um, But I don't, you know, again, I, I I think it was Max Faber who said that as far as religion goes, he's um, he, what is it? He's uh, musically. uh, I can't think of the phrase he used, but I'm just really not, I don't spiritualize Mm. stuff and I don't, I mean, I, I I get the feeling of the of the closeness to nature. Yep. I do get that kind of grounded feeling, and in fact, give, living in Florida, I the, I bought all the gear for the fly fishing here, but it doesn't it doesn't grab me the way that the mountain streams right. do. So I don't do nearly as much of it as I used to. And for me, it's actually more camping now. I'm mm-hmm. all about my camper trailer. That yeah, came, I've seen came to visit me. Yeah. Um, although I have a new one. It's a different oh, hey. one now. Um, but so it's still like you know I go to Maine in the summer and I park in the woods and I just hang out in the woods and so I still have that um, feeling of peace that comes from being by water and away from all the chaos and the crazy. Yeah. But I don't tend to make all kinds of um, spiritual poetry yeah, about yeah. it. Um, and that's what I meant by spiritual
1: too. I I guess that's because of I don't I don't know the right word, but yeah, the sense of ground groundedness. And proximity to nature is all I really meant by spiritual. Yeah. yeah.
2: And the Maine woods smell so good. Oh,
1: do the Maine woods smell different they than really... like the California woods? Is there a difference?
2: Oh, yeah. Way different. Oh. Yeah, uh, And I, <laughs> I, you know, there's nothing about California that's not perfect in my <laughs> mind. But uh, the Maine woods have a very distinctive balsam awesome smell and it's just lovely.
1: Huh. Yeah. I'm going to have to go check that out then. because
2: It's a good reason to go fishing in Maine.
1: <laughs> 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 because there is a smell of, of you know of the kinds of trees and, and the moisture in, in uh-huh. the air. And, um, yeah. So all of those things are why I like to get away. Cause you know, you've seen, I live in San Gabriel Valley, California. So getting away to places remote. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And you have a ni- you have them within a nice proximity. Like, I love the areas that you got to get to go fishing. Those are some of the first places that I like.
1: Oh, yeah? Fishing. Like Mammoth, Bishop. Like the East yeah, Sierras. Sierras and Bishop. Yeah. yeah. It's a good, yeah. you know, four to six hours, to, but um, it's reachable <laughs> in, in, in a drive. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to Colorado next week um, for a few days, mm-hmm. so hoping to trudge through the snow and get some fishing in, so. Um,
2: nice. What part?
1: Um Breckenridge. So the Blue River flows oh, okay. pretty much through town. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how the conditions are. I'm just happy to get away.
2: Um, Years ago, I got to go to a fly casting workshop that was a week long in Durango. Oh, nice, uh, which is right on the San yeah, Juan. Yeah, San Juan. And I uh, uh, used, to, I, I went, I got to go there to write about it. I, do you know? I, I don't know if you know who Mel Krieger was, but he was mm-hmm. a, one of those fly fishers. Yeah, I used to watch guys. his videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's part of like, when I said I got to sort of maneuver around in the professional world a little bit, I, I got yeah. to know some folks like that and got to uh, some opportunities to, for example, go and write about that workshop yeah. and fish. So see, really you, when you
1: drop, when you, if you drop fly fishing names, I probably know them. I, if you drop pastors and religious scholars, there's, it's hit and miss. I don't know as much <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, um, uh, I really appreciate you. It was fun. I really appreciate you. T- it's
2: always nice to talk, talk to you. Scott. Oh yeah, it's no, always I, great. I
1: love this. Um, I, you know, I was.
2: And yeah, thanks to Christy for introducing that's us.
1: I was about to say, um, we met through yeah. Christy Stroop. Uh, we got to hang out yep. for, at your your camper by the beach for a little bit one day and talk yep. about life and fishing and you know all that religious stuff, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I really value. Uh, the time I get to talk to you and I hope we can talk some more soon yeah thanks a lot thank you big thanks to Dr. Julie Ingersoll for coming on to chapel probation her work for a long time now has shed light on the state of things today in regards to how Christianity has forced its way into everyday American life along with other scholars like Brad Onishi and Chrissy Stroop She is giving us academically sound data and history of religion and its role in our culture. I'm definitely checking my calendar to see about smelling those Maine woods this summer. I'll keep you posted. Okay, it's music time. Um, People seem to like the first one I did about Queen, Songs of My Deconstruction. So I'm going to take you back to a seminal moment in my youth.